Hey friend, Graham Baldwin here with The Speaker Lab. Hey, wouldn't it be nice if someone gave you the exact process to find and book more speaking gigs in 2024? That'd be nice, right? Well, I'll tell you what, we're just gonna do that for you. We've created a new 18-page guide based on Dan Irvin's process that helped him actually book over $100,000 in speaking gigs in the past year. Now, Dan is one of our uh, team members here. He's this, a very successful speaker and also one of our coaches. And so you're gonna learn how to get started prospecting, master discovery calls, proposal emails, and so much more. All you got to do is go to thespeakerlab.com slash steps. Again, that's plural, thespeakerlab.com slash steps. We're going to send you that PDF guide right to your inbox. Again, that is thespeakerlab.com slash steps. That's it. That's all you got to do. Go there. Hey, thanks for listening. We appreciate it. You're awesome. Hey, what's up, friends? Grant Baldwin here. Welcome back to the Speaker Lab podcast. So good to have you here with us today on episode 322. We got another great show for you today as we're going to be talking with my friend Houston Kraft about how to scale your speaking business. Now, what I love about this conversation is that Houston and I walk through the entire timeline of his speaking career. And because of that, I think there's going to be something here for everyone, no matter what stage of your speaking career that you're in currently or where you're headed. Now, Houston is a really bright guy. He's got a huge, huge heart. You're going to hear in his own words how he was able to actually booked those first few gigs without much experience at all. We're also going to talk about his high volume years when he was doing, get this, over 120 speaking gigs per year. It's a lot of speaking. And as you might expect, he got to a point where he wanted to scale back, focus on other avenues of making income. So we're going to talk about that as well. Houston's got a brand new book that just came out a few months ago. He shared a bunch of awesome insights in this episode that I'm excited for you to hear. So let's get right to it. Here's my conversation on scaling your speaking business with Houston Craft. Enjoy. Hey, what's up, friends? Grant Baldwin here today, joined by my buddy Houston Kraft. We're going to be talking all about Houston's speaking journey. He's got a new book out as well. And then also how he has really uh, done a good job transitioning his speaking business from being just a, a one-man band out on the road uh, to being in hundreds of, of schools with a curriculum. And uh, so we're going to be talking about that as well. So uh, Houston, thanks for uh, for joining us today. How are you doing today, man? I am great. We'll see if I've done a good job transitioning. I guess we'll unpack that today. To be determined. <laughs> all right. So let's, first of all, uh, why don't you give us a snapshot of what business is like for you? Uh, I know you do a lot in the education space and that's kind of how we've crossed paths. Uh, but talk to us about how much speaking are you doing? Who do you normally speak to? Give us a snapshot of what the uh, the curriculum side of the business is like and what's what's all things Houston look like. And then we'll, we'll dig in from there. All right. This is the snapshot version. Well, I would say the, the journey has been what's the song? You got to get up to get down. Okay. Yep. Yep. <laughs> you know, <laughs> but my first year speaking, uh, working in schools was really like 2010. Uh, and I spoke at 13 events or, or schools. And my philosophy at the time was, uh, just build relationships and provide value after the stage. So what could they do coming out of the message that was meaningful to them. And that next year was like 35. The year after that was 70 something. And then it was for a three or four years straight, like 120 plus. And that's no joke. Let's yeah. I was like, let's not do this again, please. (laughs) For all kinds of reasons. Um, And was that primarily like high schools or, or conferences or what was that? What was that mix? Yeah, high schools, middle schools, and conferences was okay. was the sweet spot. Um, mostly schools. I was like in the trenches, assemblies. Yeah. I was in the cafeterias, the gymnasiums, the cafe and the gymnasium, whatever the, the hybrids <laughs> are in these smaller schools. 
Uh, and once I hit 120 for enough years, um, there was a, a breaking point, you know, mentally, physically, relationally. Uh, and I was like, we got to go the other direction. So what does it look like to create boundaries on my time? What does it look like to scale the message beyond myself? Uh, and that's when we started Character Strong, which is the curriculum side of the world. Yep. Uh, and I partnered with my friend and, and longtime hero and mentor. I think that next year I was only down to maybe 100 because we were still growing the business, but I was shifting what stages I wanted to be on. So I was working on more educator conferences. Uh, we were working with more educators, more adults. And I realized I really started to like that. I liked the semi train, the trainer approach. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the year after that was probably 80. And now, I mean, COVID changed a lot of things, but I get to present from a room. <laughs> um, but I try to keep that at the, at a maximum around 50 engagements a year. Okay. Very cool. I want to go back in time for a second. Uh, you mentioned that you, you first started booking gigs back in 2010, give or take. Uh, so what first inspired you to become a speaker? You decided to become a speaker and like, what are, what are some of those early steps that you, you take? Yeah, I, I realized the intersection of the things that I loved was roughly youth speaking. I mean, I, my background is in theater. I did theater in high school mainly because I broke my leg skiing and I was a big soccer player. And my English teacher was like, you should audition for the musical. I was like, I can't sing. She's like, there's a part where you're a mute king. I was like, great. I'm in. (laughs) (laughs) And I got hooked. I got hooked on performing. And and at some point I realized I wasn't a very good actor, but I loved, I loved storytelling, right? I loved the, um, the ability to be on stage and share a story with an audience and, and move them in some direction. Um, and then my other passion in, in high school was leadership. I was involved in student council, student government, student leadership. Uh, I continued that into college. You know, what does that look like? Big transition from sort of like activities to sort of thinking about policy and systems change. And I realized I didn't want to be a politician. <laughs> I initially was like, I'll study political theory and we'll do the politics thing. And I was like, nope. <laughs> and then I realized I wasn't a very good actor. Uh, <laughs> and I was like, how do I fuse these two things together? And I realized that youth speaking was really, I got introduced to someone who'd been doing it a long time, Tyler Derman, mm-hmm. uh, through a guy at my college. He's like, hey, you should meet this guy who's made a career out of this. Um, and he was a huge, still is a mentor in my life, but a huge mentor for me early on. Uh, explaining just how to yeah leverage story to help people, and then of course all the back end business stuff that I was like, what's a UBI number? Right, right. <laughs> like, help! Right. They want a contract. What do I put in it? Um, and so leaning on him was huge, and that was the uh, yeah that was year one, and I realized that I just loved the ability to be on stage and not try to pretend to be anything, but share stories of my own that made sense to me to teach the things that I'd already believed about with the work and leadership. Well, so it sounds like there, there were the meeting Tyler was definitely a big thing because you had some type of guide there that can say, okay, let me let me give you some shortcuts here. Here's what you need to be doing. Here's what you need to be thinking about. But even just meeting Tyler, like, how does that lead to you booking gigs? Because there's so many people who are are listening who are in that spot of, I would love to be a speaker. I've seen some type of speaker that inspired me. I know some type of speaker. They've told me what to do, but I don't know necessarily you know, where do I go from here? So do you remember like what you did to book those first couple of gigs? Yeah. Well, my background being in student leadership was a key ingredient, right? I had relationship equity from, um, I was a delegate at a student leadership camp in Washington state where I grew up. Um, then I went back to be a junior counselor and then a senior counselor. And so at the beginning of my career, I'd already served at this camp for a number of years. And the camp brings together student leaders from all over the state. 
uh, and I started speaking there. I formed relationships there. Uh, and so early on, I reached out to these people who, whose students I'd worked with. And I said, hey, can I come talk to your leadership class? Um, so I knew that like trying to come out the gates, being an assembly speaker wasn't going to be good for me or them. Yeah. And so I was like, I'll come talk for free to your leadership class. Um, and I remember in the early days, just like asking for a ton of feedback. I created some feedback forms that I asked the kids to like be honest with and what stuck, what didn't. Um, and so I did a couple of those gigs early on just for free with a small class. And then some people in those class helped plan like regional little events for a hundred, 200 people, you know, like yep. inner highs or intercouncil sort of things. Yep. And, uh, I, I remember my first invitation besides John, who's my, my co-founder in character strong, he was the first person to ever hire me to speak at his school. My other first invitation was uh, a school, like the first person who I spoke to their leadership class they went on to bring me back for their assembly. So um, I was a big believer in just like, give it a shot at a small scale, uh, figure out what you want to say and what works. And then uh, if they like you, they'll bring you back for the bigger stage. Well, I think an important lesson there is to always like start with what you know, where you already have some connections, where you already have some relationships, like start with what's low hanging fruit for you. So there's too, there's so many speakers that we talk to who are going, you know, uh, like in your case, saying, I've got some connections in the youth space, but I would love to speak to car manufacturers. And it's like, do you have any connections with car manufacturers, any ties <laughs> to car manufacturers? No, no, no. I just think it'd be cool. I just like cars. I was like, yeah, but let's start with something you already know. So like in your case, like I already have some existing relationships. So how can I use use that to start to book some gigs. And, and one of the things we've found over the years is like speaking is very much a momentum business and booking the first couple of gigs can be difficult. But like you said, you went from 13 to 30 something to 80 something to 120 something. And that's not an overnight process, but it starts to build up over time. So was there anything that you did early on to go from 13 to 30 something to 80 something, just to start to uh, continue to gain some momentum of that, 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 uh, that snowball as I was building up speed? Yeah, I mean, my, because my passion was story and storytelling, I, I created some videos early on, and then I built activities around videos. I spent a lot of time, you know, asking teachers sort of what they needed and, and knowing that so often a need was just like practical, meaningful activities and, and particularly media at the time. I mean, that's still true. But, but back then, you know, I produced a couple of videos with friends and then I built activities. My background being in summer camp, I knew how to build experiential learning activities, activity-based learning and so I went to work being like, all right, here's a cool message that I believe in, something that I can come in and speak about. Here's a video. And then here's an activity you can wrap around it. So I think um, the best thing that I did for myself was to build early on those like bonus pieces of content that I would just give for free to schools to be like, hey, you have me speak. Here's something you can use after the fact. Here's something you can use with your leadership group. And I mean, if it's a mo the momentum business is only because it's a word of mouth business and people, I think, see when you're thoughtful about the value you bring beyond the stage. There are, uh, you know, thousands and thousands of schools, uh, but uh, it's also what feels like a very small pond uh, as far as schools go, as far as uh, speakers in a certain industry or space go. It's easy to start to, once you kind of get going, like you kind of connect and build relationships with others and schools talk amongst themselves. If, if a school, if you go speak at a school and do well, like uh, they talk to other schools and that can kind of lead to, uh, you know, other gigs. And this, before long, it starts to, again, kind of almost in some ways take on a life of its own of like, how did you hear about me or where did this come from? But it feels difficult. Um, 
uh, early on trying to build some of that momentum. So were there times, especially at the beginning where like, you're just, you're reaching out, I'm doing everything I possibly know. I'm asking Tyler all these questions. I'm putting together, you know, additional resources. And I'm just, there's times where I'm getting traction and times where it feels like I'm not getting anywhere. So are there times where you're just like, what am I doing? Like, maybe I just need to get a real job. Maybe this isn't worth it. Maybe this is more difficult than I thought. Maybe I'm not as good as speakers. I thought maybe I don't have what it takes. Are you having any of those like doubts and insecurities and fears? Uh, I, I don't know, probably the, like the right answer for the context of this is yes, but I, actually I, my, I had the inverse problem was I was saying yes to too many things okay. along the way. And I, I felt competent at what I was doing. You know, I, th- that was, that was never like my pain point. My pain point was like perhaps too much confidence and like too much acceleration that um, I burnt myself out and I, I, I ruined relationships along the way. And I, and I ruined a like, my sense of self along the way. Um, so yeah, less of the like, ah, what am I doing? Is this the right thing? And more of this is going well. And I'm going to say yes to everything because maybe I had a little bit of that like scarcity mindset, like it'll run out. Or like, if I don't say yes, will they want to hire me again? Uh, and so I would book myself into the silliest flight paths you can imagine just to accommodate people. Um, yeah. So uh, yeah, a bit of the inverse issue. So to that degree though, because you, because we talked about like speaking is very much momentum business and it's picking up steam and picking up steam. Is there a point that you get to where you feel like this is out of control? Like I'm, I'm, um, I, I'm, I always think about it like this, like when you're on stage, like that 30, 45, 60 minutes that you're on stage, like it's hard to compete with that. Everything else is pretty boring and pretty tedious and it can be really, really tiring and draining. Like you spend a lot of time just waiting, you're waiting backstage, you're waiting on a flight, you're waiting in a hotel room, you're waiting in a, uh, pick up your rental car. You're, you're just waiting. And it's very non-glamorous and very non-sexy despite people thinking, Oh, you're on the road 120 days a year. That's amazing. It's like, no, it's not. Um, and so are you, is there a time where you just feel like this is out of control or uh, like what, what's causing you to realize I'm reaching a breaking point here? Cause this isn't healthy. I mean, a, a lot of indicators. Uh, yeah. I would say one of my least favorite feelings is like missing the rental car shuttle as it drives away, recognizing that there's like another 20 minutes where you're just waiting. Yeah. There is you know, a lot of, a lot of good moments where you walk into the restaurant and it's like, just you. And you're like, yeah, just me. <laughs> uh, you know, and then, then like the very real sense, there was plenty of times where, you know, your body, like your, your time zone hopping, yep. you're running through airports. You're not eating particularly well because airports haven't figured that piece out super successfully yet. Um, and for me, I, I was, I was in a, a long-term relationship that was suffering as a result of it. Uh, that, that, that was one of the biggest, obviously like most close proximity pain points that I was experiencing with regularity is you forget sometimes that relationships require momentum. And when you drop in and you only have three days at home, you can look at that like, oh, we got like these three days of like quality time. But like for most people, you can't just drop back into a relationship and, and pick up where you left off. Right. There's like always like the coming back yeah, and then there's the leaving. And yeah. so you're quote unquote three days at home, but it's really only a few hours of, of time where you're back in a groove. Um, and, and that dynamic war on that relationship over time. Uh, and then in 2016, my mom was diagnosed with stage four colon cancer and, uh, 
I couldn't, you know, there was like, I had all these things booked. Um, and I realized that I wasn't able to like spend as much time as I wanted to or needed to with her. She's currently four years cancer free, which is wow, probably the awesome. best gift of my life. But um, yeah, I mean, 2016 was when things started coming to a bit of a screeching halt. Our relationship was falling apart. My mom was sick. Uh, I wasn't feeling great. The framework that I that I was introduced to that's, that's helped me a lot. Um, I, I don't know how I stumbled upon it, but it, it's quoted in a, a lot of various areas online. It's called the four burner theory. And it basically says we all have four burners in our life, work, family, friends, and health. And the premise of the particular article I was reading was if you want to be traditionally, I say that with air quotes, traditionally successful in work, you have to turn off one of the other burners. If you want to be really successful traditionally in work, you have to turn off two. And I read this article and I was like, I think I've turned off all three. You know, my, uh, my family, I like, I, I talked to, but my closest relationship to with me was, was rough. Uh, my friends stopped inviting me to things because I was always leaving or coming or going. Uh, and my health, you know, emotionally and physically was, was the product of a lot of, you know, Hampton Inn breakfasts and, mm-hmm. and 4am wake up calls. Yep. Uh, but I was speaking 120 days a year. So, uh, it, it, that model, the four burners, right? Like the premise there is there's only burners are fueled by fuel and we have a limited amount of fuel. However you want to frame that time, energy, effort, uh, our capacity is limited. And as my therapist once told me, you can't be a 10 at everything. And I was like, (laughs) why would you give me that? Um, but that framework for me was like such a humbling perspective to be like, okay, cool. Is this the, is this the success I want to arrive at and at what cost? And it doesn't mean that that has to be a binary. Um, I think there's like, there's seasons, right? There's ways to regulate that and think about that and frame that and communicate that to your partner, your friends, your family, whatever. Um, but for me, I was like, I've, I've gone too far. Yeah. Hey friends, do you know the five steps to book more gigs and get paid as a speaker? Well, if not, listen up because these same five steps that help me to grow a seven figure speaking career are all laid out in great detail in my latest book, The Successful Speaker. Five steps for booking gigs, getting paid, and building your platform. Whether you want to speak as a side hustle or your dream is to become a full-time professional speaker, I know what it takes. I share all of that with you in this definitive step-by-step roadmap. Let me be your guide. Learn from my mistakes. Get paid what you know you're worth to share your unique message on stage. If you want to read the first chapter for free or just check out the book, go to thespeakerlab.com slash book. Again, that is thespeakerlab.com slash book. Check out your copy of The Successful Speaker. So where do you go from there? Because it it sounds, um, uh, I think, to a, a, a bigger degree of what you're dealing with. I had a smaller sense of that, of just like, I, I got to a point where I was doing, you know, 70 gigs a year, um, was gone a lot and just kind of felt like, I remember a, a speaker friend telling me early on, he's like, speaking is a high paying manual labor job in that we get paid really, really well to stand on stage and run our mouth. But the nature of it is you, you do have to show up. You do have to be there. So if you're like, I need to take a month off to focus on my relationship, or I need to take a, a month off to take care of my mom, or I need to just, I just need to take a nap. Um, hmm. like any number of things 
that you want to do, but you're obligated. It's kind of like a, like a surgeon, like a surgeon makes really good money, but a surgeon has to keep showing up and performing the surgery. If they don't perform the surgery, like they're, they don't have a job, they're out of, out of business. Yeah. And so how do you go from having this epiphany of like, I can't keep going at this pace, but this is how I make my living. Not to mention like you enjoy it. Like the, again, the, the, the 45 minutes, the one hour you're on stage, that's amazing. It's really, really hard to compete with that feeling, the impact, the difference, the thousands and thousands of audience members you, you've, you've touched and impacted, but you're also going, I can't keep up this pace. So having that epiphany and, and knowing like, uh, I can't keep going at this pace. Like where, where do you go from there? Yeah, there's two parts. One, one is I think that I'd also I'd been so absorbed by. I mean, to your point, like there there is something magic about the impact in the story. But when you get to those numbers, you lose even a little bit of that. Like you're saying a lot of times, I'd be saying so many of the same things on repeat. Um, the way I talk about it in my book, I said I feel like I became a first impression because the work so often is you're showing up to a new place and you're supposed to be a speaker, motivational speaker, inspirational, whatever, which means there's like some level of expectation of how you're going to engage even off stage. And I'd show up and be like, hi, you know, like I have to be this enthusiastic version of yourself. And I'm sharing with the audience, oftentimes like some of the most vulnerable, meaningful stories in my life. And I get all this like sort of one directional relationship happening. And then I leave and sometimes I'll do it in two or three schools a day. And you have to like reset every time you walk in a new set of doors. And so at those numbers, right? Like it's just a little bit of a cautionary tale for myself, which is you do anything on repeat um, unless you can find different ways to attach yourself to that clarity of purpose and the why or, or change up the content in a way that, that fills that gap. For me, I, I found myself, um, reduced down to what felt like one dimension, you know, mm-hmm. like, like didn't, I, I, I stopped being able to access a more emotional side of myself because you just kind of have to put on the show. Um, Real quick. Are you more introverted or extroverted? I have no idea. <laughs> <laughs> well, the reason I ask is like, I, I have found people assume as speakers, like most speakers are supposed to be extroverted. They're the life of the party, but yeah. I found most speakers are actually relatively introverted. So being with a large group of people, even from, from standing on a stage is a lot of fun, but then you get off and it, it just, it's mentally exhausting and draining. And yeah. so it just, it takes a second. So uh, very few speakers I know that are just like going from gig to gig to gig and just like, this is the best, this is the best, this is the best. <laughs> it's like, it is cool. I just need a second to just like sit in silence and like yeah. recalibrate and gather my thoughts again. Um, so it sounds like, you know, whether you're introverted or extroverted, like it sounds like you had a, a bit of that going on as well. Yeah. I think I'm an ambiverted entertainer. Fair <laughs> so enough. <laughs> I code switch a lot. I, I prefer different things in different circumstances, but I, at the end of the day, like I, I am passionate about storytelling. Like I enjoy yeah. the art of crafting a message and delivering it and, and having an audience track with me as, as you take them. Right. As that's like, yeah. it's like a, a great musician or great movie like brings you from point A to point B effectively. Um, and that's the thing that to your earlier question, that was the thing I was trying to address is like, how do you meaningfully take this thing that feels so rooted in, in me sharing this story and, right. and how do you scale beyond yourself? Um, and I really had to uh, you know, work backwards. I said, I'm doing 120 gigs. What does it look like for me to do 80 next year? Right. How do I fill that gap? Uh, in my time, financially, uh, what what could I put in there? And and that's when um, I was like, I, I have to build something that t- 
doesn't need me as an ingredient in it. Mm -hmm. Um, and so I reached out to my friend, John, who was the director of that leadership camp. He was a classroom teacher at that point. He'd been a teacher for 10 years at the high school level. And uh, at the time I reached out, he was working at the district level as a, as a minute administrator. And I knew I'd always been a longtime friend with John. Um, and we'd done some little projects together, but he, like, even while he was working in the school, the impact he was having on his school culture was so profound. People were coming to him to be trained by him. Like, how do you do this work? How do you approach this? What are your philosophies? What are your tools? Like, give me what you got. Cause you're doing something right. Mm-hmm. And I came to John. I was like, you know, you've built an incredible program in your school. You've thought about what it looks like on a, on a district level. You know, uh, how do we think about this pre-K through 12th grade on a systems level? And I'm like, I've wandered around to 600 schools uh, on a national level. And I've built a lot of relationships along the way. This feels like it makes a lot of sense for me to figure out how we take the message you've been delivering, how we scale that and how I introduce it to the people that I've, I've met over the past seven years. Um, and so that was October, 2016, almost four years ago, exactly. Um, or no, excuse me, 2017. Somewhere in there. Was it a natural, um, (laughs) was that just a natural epiphany? Because like for speakers who are in that same spot of going, I'm doing a lot of gigs and I'm realizing, you know, I'm, I'm playing this out and it's not sustainable. Uh, like we both know speakers who do, you know, 30, 40, 50, 60 gigs. They've done it for 20, 30 years. That's what they want to do the rest of their life. And that's fine. There's nothing wrong with that. But, um, you know, if you want to build something that is not dependent on you getting on a plane and getting on a stage, you really have to think about it. And there's a lot of different models and ways to do that. So was partnering with John and doing the curriculum thing, was that just like a, a natural first choice? Hey, if I'm, if I can't get on a plane, then doing something with John is the next obvious choice. Or were there other scenarios that you went through of how to build something that doesn't depend on you being on a stage? Yeah, I'd, I'd played with some other models, but at the end of the day, I was tired of of working siloed. I, I'd had one kid who'd seen me speak who I ended up hiring to work alongside me. Um, and he was great. I mean, even just from like a company perspective, you know, yeah. like he would not come with me to all gigs, but I would fly up to Washington and we'd have a week on the road together. And yeah. um, sometimes it's just nice to have someone to bounce ideas off of, which is, you know, the, one of the more isolating parts of the, the job. Yeah. Um, but John was someone that I always respected and I knew he did the work really thoughtfully and intentionally and well. Uh, and so, yeah, he was my first choice. And um, there were some moments along the way where he wasn't sure. We went back and forth on how to do it, how to divide up the company. He was mm-hmm. still kind of working for the district at the time. So it was kind of a side project. And it took a full year of us starting to work alongside each other until um, it became busy enough where we said, OK, we got to be all in, all in on this thing. Um, and that, you know, that journey required a lot of sacrifices on both of our parts, but it, we, we both had to stay in our, our lanes as we were coming together. It wasn't a black and white shift. Yeah. Um, which I think is, you know, the, the learning of this whole process for me is that you can't go from 120 to 80, um, just because you say so. I mean, <laughs> you, there, you have to build the systems to make that real. Uh, and that goes up and that goes down. Right. right. Um, and so being patient, um, one of the things I started building for myself is like, I'm going to say yes to 10 of these sorts of gigs, five of these sorts of gigs, right? Seven of these sorts of gigs. And I color coded it. And once you hit that max, I was like, all right, this is what I'm done. Mm-hmm. And um, 
you know, I, I think that again, like that goes well, if you're building your business, this is what I'm going for. And if you're, if you're trying to scale down that side of your business, if you're in a transitionary period, that's what worked for me. Boundaries, man. What were some of those examples of like, when you're talking about color coding, like what, what type of events or what type of schools were you were, were falling in some of those categories? Out of state schools, in state schools, uh, schools who are adopting the curriculum, schools who weren't, uh, multi day conferences, uh, workshop at a conference versus keynote at a conference. Mm-hmm. Right. All of those have different business dynamics. You know, some of them are just truly a one day gig, yep. which is great. Um, but m- most of them, as you get more thoughtful, have implications for as you scale how, how you're pitching, who you're pitching to what those contacts lead to down the road. So trying to be more thoughtful in that. Whereas before I was, it was a yes to everything game. Yeah. So when you're making the transition to going like, okay, I I can't sustain this pace. I need to cut back. And you even draw some boundaries. uh, Are you still having a difficult time saying no? Because for a couple of reasons, one is like, uh, you know, it's really fun to be on stage. It's really fun to speak. And there's a lot of people that you can impact. And so it's like, ah, man, each time you say no, even to a good opportunity, it's like, ah, it's, it's, it's a good thing I could be doing. Not to mention you do enough gigs and I assume you're making good money. So you're turning down like real money with each gig that you're turning down and going from uh, 120 to 80 means that your, you know, your personal income may be cut by a third, give or take. Um, So you're making some of the, you have the boundaries, but they are also have like some consequences to them. So are there times where you're just like, I don't know, like maybe I just (laughs) ride it out or or like, I know I said I was only going to do this many of this category, but it's okay. We'll do a couple more or Hmm. I like these people or they seem nice or whatever. Are you, are you playing any of those mental games with yourself? Are you just like, no, no, like the lines drawn in the sand and like, it is what it is. Uh, yeah, we're always playing some mental games with ourselves. (laughs) (laughs) If anyone was able to go black and white, I want to talk to them. Some people do have, you know, that like a freakish level of discipline that's beyond well beyond my capacity. No, it was a, it was a, it was a grad, it was a slide in. (laughs) I feel like I needed to, um, you know, I, I think creating the structure, having the discipline to create the structure was, uh, amplified awareness. Yeah. And so when I did get wishy-washy and I did say yes to things beyond the metrics I'd given myself, which I did do a number of times, as soon as I went to go do those things, I was always reminded of exactly why I didn't want to do them. And now that I'd given myself the framework, I had something to go back to, right? I had an alignment that I was like, this is why I said I wasn't going to do this. And so, um, while I wasn't a, wasn't perfect in execution at actually making sure I said yes or no to these things, mm-hmm. they gave me a sense of measurement or a, a, a framework to go back to and say, okay, I said I was going to do this amount. And now that I'm doing this, right, I'm suddenly in Chicago and I've missed my flight and it's a snow delay. And now I'm not going to get back in time to see this thing. And like those things happen yeah. and those things, um, maybe they'd always happened, but because they were happening in the context of the framework, I was like, oh yeah, okay, this is why I built <laughs> oh, it. this is why. <laughs> right, right. So whenever you're making that transition from, okay, I'm going, I'm going back down from 120 to 80 to further down, uh, you are uh, similar to like when you were building up, like it's not an overnight process. It's not like you're, you're all these gigs that are on the books that you can't just be like, yep, my bad. I'm not going to do yours and yours and yours and yours. So as you're coming back down there, 
and you're making that transition to uh, to uh, to focus more on the curriculum side. Like, if we fast forward to now, like, what does the the curriculum side look like? How does that business tie into your speaking? What is that business model like? Yeah. So when we first started Character Strong, the goal was to build an advisory curriculum for high schools and middle schools, which is just that like homeroom curriculum, the the, the content that every student in a school would be exposed to in an ideal world. And our goal was to focus on social, emotional learning and and character. That was sort of my background. That's how I thought about leadership. I talked a lot about kindness and compassion and connection. These were all sort of the tenets I believed in, just like built into a structure that was familiar for schools. Um, The gift of having John on board was he'd built a curriculum already in his high school. And then at the district level, he was responsible for bringing programs like this in. And he knew exactly what worked and he knew what didn't work. And he knew that particularly the secondary level had a big gap, right? High school, there's almost no effective engaging content related to social emotional learning. And uh, because that's where I spent a lot of my career and and where he'd spent most of his, we felt like we had a lane to travel in. Um, And so that's what we started building. And it was just me and uh, his, his wife, Lindsay, who we were sort of like the leadership team and we built and uh, I'll fast forward. I think we went the first year and a half without anyone else on the team. Um, and if you were to fast forward to today, presently, we had about 14 full-time members on the team and in contract with a lot of educators to do uh, presentations for us, professional development. And it's been an ongoing, you know, year over year doubling, um, which has been awesome and super encouraging. Yeah. And I think uh, we've just tapped a need, right? Once we, sort of solidified our lane as a secondary curriculum. We started working with districts and districts are like, what can you build for elementary? We're like, we got it. Start building that. Yeah. And districts are like, Hey, we got the curriculum, but it's not working well. So we're like, you know, what we're really good at is, is training and speaking. Now uh, we're good at building uh, professional development modules and building things that are engaging and relevant, especially for educators, because we come from a background of education. Uh, and so we built a professional development team and that's become a huge portion of what we do. And one of the things that makes us unique in the field, right? A lot of programs are like, we have a curriculum, but the reality of just about any curriculum, whether it's education or not, is like, unless you have coaching, accountability, training on how to do it well, it's not going to get done. So that's like where we, I feel like excel. Um, Yeah. So character strong. Now, everything I do, my framework is always, how does this point? How does this point towards character strong? Because if it doesn't, then uh, I'm not going to make time for it right now because my only goal is to grow that work because I believe that work is a lot bigger than me. Uh, and I want to point towards something that removes my name, my likeness from the equation as often as I can, uh, because my stories are meaningful, but they're not scalable um, in the traditional sense, right? Over time. Um, and so that's where we're at now. Everything I say yes to now filters through character strong uh, and my aim is to be in front of administrators, counselors, district employees, decision um, makers, decision makers, anyone who's thinking yeah. about bringing in curriculum like that. So it sounds like you, you know, you started doing this back in 2017, the business doubles, 2018, 2019, uh, man, things, things are, are cruising. Uh, there certainly <laughs> couldn't be anything that could throw it off track. Uh, so when, <laughs> you know, we, we look at the beginning of 2020 and the world starts to implode uh, and, it, it, you know, you start to see things happening in, in Asia and then Europe and like, surely that won't happen here in the U.S. And then, you know, next thing you know, schools are closed for the year. Uh, and then even going through the summer and going into the fall, schools are going, are we going to open? Are we not going to open? What's the school going to look like? 
So what can you walk us through? Like, what's this year look like for you for a business that offers uh, curriculum for schools, then largely dependent on uh, schools happening, schools meeting. Uh, so what, yeah. how has that, how have some of the transitions taken place for you and, and what have been some of the, the ramifications of, of COVID? Yeah, I mean, it's the gift of, of over the past few years, fully stepping into character strong is when you're, when you're not the sole deliverer of the message, you, you have some flexibility in what you do, right? If I don't have to be there face to face, we get to change the way we deliver that content. Uh, we met back in March and we said, uh, you know, I feel very grateful that I get to work alongside John, who's incredibly dedicated and, and he's a pusher and he's like, this is not going to be something we survive. We're going to thrive through this and we're going to do everything we can to serve exactly what schools need every step of the way. And so we literally in less than a week, we transitioned our whole in-person training experience to virtual. I started hosting virtual assemblies uh, a week into quarantine. I did nine of those and I curated, I pulled people's stories in from different speakers and storytellers that I knew to represent it back to schools. Um, and we started building lessons immediately. We knew, I think our initial inclination was, okay, how do we take old lessons and repurpose them? And as a team, we went, that's not going to work. We can't upcycle this stuff. We have to build something new because the world is so new. Uh, and so we started building lessons that could be done in person or virtual. We started building lessons in some, what I think of as unique ways where it's like nonlinear experiences and allowing kids to have a lot more choice and autonomy in it. Um, and schools have, I think seen, uh, we hosted our first virtual summit, which we were already planning pre COVID, but it couldn't have happened at a better time to, you know, hit educators right as they needed a boost of support and morale and courage. Uh, so yeah, um, I say all that to say I'm super proud of the team. Yeah. Um, I feel like I had spent so much time being in this sort of way of doing the work that as soon as I had an opportunity to think about it differently, I actually was like more energized and excited than I've ever been. As soon as I realized that there was like a real paradigm shift happening, I was like, this is, this is what I want to be about. Like I want to be in the mess saying, how do we reinvent this so that it works right now? So I felt really um, purposeful during this time. Yeah. And because we had a team that we'd been building already, all of a sudden we had the flexibility and legs to, to hit the ground running on this stuff. So um, yeah, I, I believe like pain points are the opportunity to reinvent, right? And we get caught up trying to be like, how do we do the old thing in the new way versus yeah. like, what is the new way demand? You, uh, you built your career by largely speaking to schools and uh, you, you mentioned that you've done a lot of uh, virtual assemblies. There's a lot of uh, speakers who listen who are in the education space who were doing a lot of school assemblies, were doing a lot of um, you know, student leadership conferences and events, doing professional development and uh, what felt like just uh, one moment, everything's great, next moment, everything stops. What's, what's your sense as you kind of look, again, you, you work with a lot of educators, you know a lot of speakers in the education space. What's your kind of sense of how this plays out? What are the long-term implications of being a youth speaker uh, in the education space? Uh, my sense for the past few years uh, is that as assemblies are a dying breed. Uh, I don't think stories are a dying breed, but I think the old way of gathering in a gym, um, just because that's sort of the way we've always done it. I think COVID um, 
obviously COVID is like the most physical barrier, but I think my sense in the tail end of my career doing that pretty much full time was there's something about this that's not working the way it used to. Yeah. Uh, I think it has to do something with um, students being overwhelmed, academically, anxiety increasing. I think it has a lot to do with uh, the continued accessibility of phones and our attention spans. Um, not to say that it's a good thing or a right thing. It's just like my observation is like the dynamic of it continued to change. Yeah. And I think pulling people into the gym is it just feels like the old, an old way of doing things. Um, and so I, when I started building those virtual assemblies, I was like, this is a gift. Like I get to pull in voices that I never get to have alongside me. And it's no longer, you know, me can only go so far to so many kids, mm-hmm. you know, and, and my stories might cross a lot of different barriers, but how important is it for, for kids to see themselves in the person talking, to recognize themselves in the stories that they're listening to? And I can't be the only person to deliver that message. Now, does my story reach certain people in certain moments? Sure. But um, to build out those virtual assemblies, just about everyone had four to five different people, including musicians and artists and and people outside of the youth speaking space. I was like, this is what this could be about, yeah. is, is curating curating voices that care uh, to deliver a message that matters in a way that's like a bit more thoughtful, a little bit more interesting and a lot more equitable. Yeah. Very cool. Houston, we appreciate the time, man. Before we wrap up, uh, can you tell us where can uh, people find you online? Then also tell us about the, uh, the brand new book that you've got out. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you can find me if you're looking for me, like very personally, uh, Houston craft <laughs> on Instagram. That's probably the thing I'm most active on or Facebook, wherever you want to find me. Houston, like the city craft, like the cheese, uh, character strong.com is the organization that, uh, we've built. If you're interested in learning more about that side of the world and then the book, the book is called deep <laughs> kindness. Uh, I just got published in September, 2020 by Simon and Schuster. Um, it's called deep kindness because I've spent the past decade thinking about kindness. And I think the way that we think about it and talk about it uh, actually does a lot of damage to the idea of it. I think we think about kindness as something that's free or light or fluffy. And the book argues that we got a whole lot more work to do and a whole different way of thinking about it that I, I hope and believe is, is the sort of kindness that the world presently needs. Very cool. Again, the book is deep kindness. Go pick it up. Houston, thanks for the time, man. We appreciate it. This was a lot of fun. Of course, Grant. Can't wait to have a background like yours one day. Someday. (laughs) All right, there you go. Hope you enjoyed today's episode of the Speaker Lab Podcast. And before you take off, don't forget if you haven't already, make sure you subscribe to the podcast. Leave us a rating and review within iTunes. We read every single one of those. It helps helps other people to find the show. Listen, we we don't charge anything for you to listen to these. We don't have any ads or anything. We do this because we want to serve and support speakers like you. So one small favor we ask of you, is that you would leave us some type of a rating and review. Again, we really, really do appreciate that. If you're looking for more help, support as a speaker as you build and grow your business at whatever stage you're at, don't forget to check out thespeakerlab.com, thespeakerlab.com. We got a ton of free resources and tools over there. So again, check it out over at thespeakerlab.com. All right, my friends, that wraps up today's episode. We appreciate you hanging out with us. We'll catch you next time. You're awesome.